from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. It's the conversation we have every week exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can visit totalleadership.org for all kinds of information and free stuff about how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. That's the pursuit of four-way wins, improved performance at work, at home, in the community, and for yourself personally. It is indeed possible. We've got a, a proven method It's actually described now in a course that we just released uh, called Four-Way Wins on Himalaya Learning. That's an audio learning platform with a big library of great courses. You can listen to my course and others like it at Himalaya.com. And if you enter the promo code WINS at checkout, you get your first 14 days free. So I hope to see you there. New episodes of our show, Work and Life premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me. I'm at Stu Friedman. Well, are you a business owner or a manager whose employees are saying they don't want to come back to the office and not just because, just because of they their um, health concerns? Uh, or someone who's trying to figure out what uh, what the right work relationship is in the context of one's whole life. Uh, at, at this stage, we are in October 2021 recording this. Uh, my guest today says that one in four people would prefer to stay remote in a post-COVID world if they have the option to do that. And much of this has to do with how they live their lives. He's written a, a wonderful new book that offers help on managing our new world order. Scott Beeson is professor of management and the Silberman Global Faculty Fellow at Fairleigh uh, Fairly Dickinson University. He's a national expert on work and family issues. I've known him for a long time. He's the author now, most recently, of The Whole Person Workplace, building better workplaces through work, life, wellness, and employee support. Scott, welcome back to Work and Life. It's great to be here, Stu. Uh, Great to talk to you again. Thank you. Yes. Let me say a little bit more about you, Scott, uh, before we jump into our conversation. Uh, Scott Beeson is an accomplished professional speaker and consultant who provides talks, workshops, webinars, and keynotes for corporate clients, all kinds of organizations and conferences. He provides insight and perspective on whole person workplaces, on employer support for working parents, work and fatherhood and related topics for some of the world's leading companies. He's also the author previously of the Working Dad Survival Guide and We Hate Team Projects. I don't, I don't know about that one. We have talked about the Working Dad Survival Guide here on the show. Let's talk about your latest. Um, <clears throat> well, I, what's, what's really fascinating is that you started to write a book about uh, the family forward um, workplace and then had to switch gears as COVID hit, uh, tell us briefly what happened to your grand design um, and what shifted when, uh, in March 2020, the whole thing blew up. Yeah. So, you know, like most people, things got derailed in spring of 2020. But um, in this case, I, I would started on this book that was going to be very focused on working parents and how we could support them. And it was going to include things like, hey, let people work from home a day or two a week, right? And things like that. But of course, when the reality of the pandemic hit in March of 2020, everything changed. And uh, so I had to you know, change up. Um, the bulk of my interviews that I did for the book, and I profile about four dozen different companies and, and representatives of these different companies. Um, most of those interviews were done in the spring and summer of 2020, right in the height of when mm-hmm. all these employers and managers and HR people were really trying to figure out what 
what's happening? How do we take care of our business? How do we take care of the human beings who uh, work for us uh, during this unprecedented time? So, you know, in a weird way, I think it, um, you know, it, it vastly improved the book because it increased the scope um, away from just working in families and to the fact that everybody was struggling in a new reality. Everybody was facing anxiety and wellness issues and everything all at once. And also the fact that a lot of people went remote, man, a lot of managers and employers saw like how their people lived, right? And their, their, their cats and their, their families and their living rooms. And it's kind of that wall of separation between work and life um, was, you know, increasingly seen as somewhat of a fiction. So that what happens to people outside of work affects them at work. Um, and we need to value employees, not just as a piece of the machinery, but as, and not just as a slice of a human being who shows up for eight hours a day, but as a whole person uh, with responsibilities and challenges and stressors and priorities and passions outside of work. And if we do that, we create a, a workplace culture that um, can not just survive through these unprecedented times, but can really learn some great lessons from it that can, can lead to long-term success. Yeah, there may be some silver linings here that this jolt uh, of the pandemic has has uh, kind of opened up new possibilities, compelling people and organizations to to discover new ways of adapting. Um, what was what was the most surprising thing you found in in your conversations with people and organizations uh, at the at the beginning and um, throughout the pandemic? What was what was the most, uh, I don't know, upending idea or or observation that you had from that work? Yeah, well, I mean, I was not surprised that the people I was talking to and the, the employers I was talking to, which ranged from multinational companies to like literally 12 uh, part-time employees at a local uh, corner store mm -hmm. uh, and everything in between. It didn't surprise me that most of the people I talked to, you know, were more kind of pro-employee and saw the bigger picture in terms of managing employees as whole people. Mm -hmm. But what I guess surprised me is that um, they all kind of led and volunteered with this during, during my interviews. You know, I, I was going to get into specific things, but they started really talking holistically uh, kind of on their own. Um, about well, go ahead, please elaborate. Yeah, so bit about how like wow this really opened our eyes to the fact that you know work and life really are hard to separate fully wow this really you know um you know led us to the the recognition that it's not just taking care of somebody as an asset so that they can return on investment uh, and care about them as an employee but it's bigger than that right and um so i think the pandemic shifted some of that at least for the kind of the already kind of positive employers i mostly talked to um but Again, I, I also was struck by how some companies that had already embraced things like workplace flexibility um, and kind of these these kind of more humanistic cultures, they weren't as freaked out as some of the other companies that were playing catch up uh, to, to some of these realities, right? Um, if you already built a culture of flexibility, you know, uh, transitioning to remote work was easier um, in many. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, let's talk a bit about the freakout um, that you know, most people and organizations experienced. Uh, what did you observe about what was most uh, disconcerting or disruptive um, for for you know the the run of the mill organization and and how their you know their initial reactions turned into something uh, useful. Yeah, so many of these companies never supported remote work before, never probably right. in a widespread scale, but then we're forced into it, we're thrown into the deep ends of the pool. So that's part of the freak out, right? How do I know if my people are going to be working if I can't see them? And, you know, so I think a lot of it led to uh, really thinking about how do we measure performance uh, in this kind of, uh, kind of new world of, of work. Um, so you know, the ones that were able to navigate, figure out, hey, goal setting and metrics and, you know, things like that, you know, did a better job. Some, I think, still, you know, might be struggling. Um, the other thing I saw, that's from the employer point of view. From an employee point of view, what I saw a lot of is that some many people who were working from home now, uh, unexpectedly, um, and again, remembering about a year ago, you know, schools were not open largely, daycare was not open largely. 
Um, so some of the work-life challenges were a little bigger and people were burning out. Uh, people had a hard time calibrating their their work. You know, like when does the workday end? Because the computer's always upstairs. Um, you know, and feeling like I need to keep proving that I'm an awesome employee because, you know, I want to hold on to my job during this very tenuous time. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, employers struggled with kind of measuring performance. And I think employees struggled quite a bit with, um, you know, burnout or capacity management. Yeah. Well, the focus on results, I mean, that's, uh, we've known for a long time. I was writing about this in the nineties with Jessica DeGroote, who, uh, who now leads the third path Institute. And I know you've been speaking with her recently about your book. In fact, like 20 minutes ago, before this conversation began, uh, you know, the, the emphasis on results and not FaceTime and that's been around forever, but somehow the, uh, the the pandemic's impact has has really opened up a, a new way of thinking about there, or, or at least a new um, readiness, perhaps on the part of uh, managers and you know organizations generally to um, to really try to figure out how to do that and how to overcome the lack of trust that they might feel about whether employees are actually working, as you said. So, can you describe? what uh, you've seen as best practice in terms of how to help uh, organizations figure out how to create that kind of uh, trust and real flexibility by assessing people's value in a way that's not bound by time and place? Yeah. So I I think, again, you know, many companies have done this uh, previously. Uh, They are leading companies have done really smart things with performance management, but um, you know, it's uh, ironically, I think in a remote workplace, it means that a lot of our communication had to be more intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the manager employee check-in became in many cases, not just like a quick chat or whatever, but it became like, okay, we are talking about what our next month's goals are and what the, the six month, you know, targets are. And how we're doing, um, and also maybe targeted conversations about how are we feeling about things, um, and maybe a little more empathy towards you know some of the situations and the challenges and the juggles mm. face too. So um, that was a big part of it, and that's based on the individual manager or supervisor, like kind of being willing to take that extra time and consideration uh, from a, a more employer or HR or leadership point of view. I think that you know many you know, first off, we're, we're like, well, how do we make sure people can work remotely? Right. I, one, one company, one uh, HR executive I talked to, um, they're in a meeting. It's like, are we going to have to buy 45,000 laptops? Um, and they did, actually. Um, and, you know, then dealing with all the VPNs and, you know, all the other information security. So, you know, just I, they got so deep into how can we make sure we're enabling work from a distance? Mm-hmm. That I think that got people to a mindset of like, okay, like we could do this because we were instead of just in an emergency situation, flipping to this in the you know next few months, they were figuring out how do we regularize this at least to some degree. Um, and that gave people a little more confidence, I think. in yeah, uh, Let me remind listeners, this is work and life. So glad you're listening in. Uh, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132, I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Scott Beeson, who's a professor of management at Fairleigh Dickinson University. We're talking about his new book, The Whole Person Workplace, written during the pandemic. Um, <clears throat> well, what, do you, what have you found about um, where there's you know, the greatest resistance to, uh, to adaptation from, from a manager point of view. And then we'll get into what, what difficulties individuals, individual contributors and employees have had and what that's meant for their families. But where's, uh, where's the biggest roadblock to successful adaptation and, and what advice do you have for, for managers um, about how to, how to deal with that and overcome it? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's some of the same old mindset of, um, you know, this is how we've always done things or, you know, even thinking, you know, this is how I have been successful for the last 25 years of my career. Mm-hmm. And now I'm being forced to change. It's uncomfortable for me. It must be uncomfortable for everybody else. Right. So it's some some of this. Um, 
inability to see things from other points of view or um, from other people's perspectives. Um, and that's somewhat has been a classic part of, you know, maybe not so great management for a long time. But, you know, I think that honestly, um, and again, in the whole person workplace, I really tried to highlight organizations that um, were able to maintain their values of like, you know, I, I care about this person as more of what they could just do for me, but as a whole person um, and, you know, implemented lots of policies and programs pre-pandemic and during pandemic uh, to support them. Um, so while yes, roadblocks, um, you know, I also see a lot of, um, you know, organizations that have really opened themselves to new ways of doing things too. So I don't want to necessarily just harp on the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the things that block it because there's so many things that enable, uh, really good management. Right. Well, what I'm getting at here is how you overcome those kinds of inhibitions to change. Right. Like, you know, this is how it's always been done. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how can we just in, you know, persist? Yeah, uh, in, in spring and summer uh, 2020, there was a lot of like, this will go away relatively soon and we can start right. back the way things were. Let's just I, hold our breath. Yeah, I think that maybe now there's a little less of that, a little less, a little more knowing that, you know, that this is, a lot of these changes are going to persist and not all of these changes have been bad. And you know, I think there's more openness to, to learning lessons now, even mm -hmm. as frustrating as it has been, I think, for many organizations, you know, especially, I think so many companies tied their return to workplace strategies, right, to August, September, return to school, uh -huh. return people to work, and then Delta variant kind of, you know, got rid of that plan. Um, and, you know, now I think that settled things in a lot of people's minds, like, okay, you know, we can't just snap back. Maybe we can in some ways, but we're always going to maintain, you know, even if most people are going to work from the office most of the time, you know, we've, we're now much more uh, open to ad hoc flexibility or as needed flexibility and things like that, at least. And that's, you know, a real positive change, I think. Absolutely. I, I agree. And, uh, you know, maybe that's what, what it, what was necessary to, <laughs> to, to create a kind of, uh, environmental jolt that that forced people to be more uh open to different models of how to embrace the whole person um what else have you observed about what companies are doing like <clears throat> what's what's the top of your list of right. uh this is a cool thing that's happened now that um you know everyone should know about in terms of what what's new in our brave new world. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, again, the, the mindset, the, the, the embrace of flexibility is, is really, really important, but that's not all that makes up a whole person workplace. Um, what I think is really cool is I saw organizations rethink how they do some of the basics of human resources and management, mm -hmm. embedding some of their values into those. So for example, yeah. you know, changing how we onboard employees, mm -hmm. um, you know, instead of just like, there's your desk and here's the policies and, and whatever, it's, you know, again, I think they became a lot more intentional in their communications about mm. how do I help this person develop an internal network here that was really going to help them uh, achieve some of their goals. Talking to them about some of the other things in their lives, not just the work aspect mm. of what they could bring as a, as a employee. Um, and I have one great story about this that actually I personally observed, which was way back when I was in graduate school, I was... Um, on a co-ed softball team, pretty competitive one. And one of my teammates, uh, she had just graduated college, you know, was a division one athlete. She got this new job. And uh, during the onboarding process, they just talked to her about what's important in her life. And she talked about this team, which was like her connection to athletics, which is a big part of her life. Mm -hmm. So the next, after the next game, we all go out for beers afterwards. And when we go to settle up the bill, the wait waiter says, nope, the bill has been taken care of. And it was by that employer. Uh, by my teammate's new employer who wanted to just show like the value that they placed on her and the things that are important in her life. Right. Um, mm. That had nothing to do with work. Right. Um, but just showed how much they valued her as a person. So that's just an well, example you could do. With maybe it did have something to do with work. Right. Well, you know, in the sense that, you know, her being, uh, in, you know, invested in that aspect sure. of her life by being, you know, acknowledged explicitly by, her boss or whoever it was who, who picked up the bill, 
um, you know, that's a way to generate a different kind of relationship or to cultivate a different kind of relationship and to acknowledge that what you do, I mean, that's really uh, an important part of the, your main thesis that who you are beyond the work role is uh, often relevant to your work performance. Right. Right. Well, I mean, but it's easy for an employer to to make the straight line between like, I'm going to, provide training and development to this employee because that's going right. to return my investment, right, at the workplace. Whereas it takes a little more thinking, right, a little more broad thinking to say, you know, if I support and, you know, just place value on the things that are important to my employees, like supporting their needs to volunteer with with um, paid time off for volunteerism or, or matching donations or things like that, you know, that that goes a little beyond, right? And that that shows that recognition. And you're trying to build that relationship, right? So you can retain this really good employee. You'll have them engaged. They won't walk away in the great resignation because, you know, they feel like they have a pretty good place where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in this case, happily, the right thing to do uh, lines up with like the good business thing to do as well. Well, it, it, it was uh, rooted in some awareness that her boss had of her interest in uh, in the softball team, right? Yeah. So, so that person had to be curious about that enough to inquire, right? And to take in that information. Well, that's what I mean about the, the onboarding was different yeah. in this case, right? Um, and we can also you know, think about embedding our values in you know, just our base pay or core benefits, making sure that extends to all parts of our workplace. It could be how we do performance management differently, as we talked about before. It could be how we hire and what we look for in people we hire and how we interview and even how we recruit. So, um, you know, that's, that's, so beyond, you know, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is, you know, through work-life wellness and employee support, you could think about a lot of programs that you can add to your organization to do that. And you should think about those creatively, but you can also think about just how do I manage employees on a day-to-day basis? And what are my core human resources policies and programs? And how can we make sure that those forward the values that we want to have as an organization, that everybody is important and even the parts of their lives that are quote unquote separate from work are important to us. So can you give us a couple of examples of uh, companies that are doing such innovations in ways that seem to be working? Yeah. So um, one example, Adidas, at one point, they were transferring employees to a new location um, Mm -hmm. that that, that they just built. And um, of course, this means people are uprooting, right? They're moving. They might be moving away from family or some of their networks in terms of childcare and things like that. So they booked ahead uh, slots at um, summer camps and at daycares um, so that when these employees moved to this new town, that was one less thing they needed to worry about, mm. right? And that's just a nice example there uh, of, you know, a company thinking about a policy a little proactively. Um, you know, How did that, they know? How did they know that that was going to be important? Do, do you have any insight well, on that? No, I mean, you know, th- this was something I researched more than I talked I, I talk to someone directly about, but um, I think they knew that some of the people that they were transferring in had families and mm-hmm. children of certain ages. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they were proactive in, in that regard. So uh, it's another, that mindset of being curious about what people might need and then trying to find ways of responding to that. Would yeah. And that? large organizations can do that in a systematic way and propose a large variety of programs, policies so that everyone finds a way that fits in. Small companies might want to, uh, might be able to customize it even more. There was one small business owner I talked to who they were going to buy a new car and trade their old one in and were going to get like $1,200 for it. They had an employee, this is a food store, uh, organic food store in California. Um, and one of their employees, their car was always breaking down and it was hard for them to get to work sometimes. They wound up selling the car for $1 to that employee um, so that they had reliable transportation to get to work. Uh, five years later, that employee is now an assistant manager. Um, and... The, the important thing is five years later, um, you know, and this small business owner told me like, who wouldn't buy, you know, retaining an employee, a good employee and promoting employee. Employee, over fi- a five year period in this industry, who wouldn't buy that for a thousand bucks? And so, you know, small businesses can start where they are. Large businesses can do things in a more systematic way. Um, but one of the things I really tried to do in highlighting a wide variety of employers is that anyone can get started with this on almost any budget and for almost any type of worker. 
Um, so it's not just, you know, you can only learn so much from Google and how they operate. Uh, it's not everybody's Google with those resources and that environment, right? So I think it's important that um, we see that, you know, uh, a local food store with 40 employees can do some things in this regard. And then large multinational companies can do other things and you can get started uh, anywhere. So I try to show a lot of positive examples there. Well, and that's really valuable uh, because um, really anyone can make uh, a small change that can have a big impact. We're going to take a short break here, Scott. And when we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation about your new book, The Whole Person Workplace. And I want to focus from the employee perspective and especially parents, what you've discovered uh, from your research on uh, what the whole person workplace looks like now in uh, fall 2021. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program, and also, more recently, of Total Leadership, a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, 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 it can be done. Check it out at totalleadership.org. I'm speaking today with Scott Beeson, who is a professor of management at Fairleigh Dickinson University. He's a national expert on work and family issues. We've been friends and colleagues for a long time. This is his third appearance on this show, which I think ties the record. That's right, Scott. You're an elite company. Um, We're talking about Scott's new book, The Whole Person Workplace, Building Better Workplaces Through Work-Life, Wellness, and Employee Support. Um, before we get into uh, what some of your key observations were about how individuals have learned and been changed um, by the experience of uh, this terrible pandemic, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about um, now here we are, fall 2021, and employees have uh, different preferences for or risk tolerances for what they're willing to expose uh, their families to uh, with with the virus. Uh, There are certain people who uh, who are unable or in some cases unwilling to be vaccinated or to wear masks. Uh, That's a that's a pretty important issue these days. Maybe that'll fade away once everyone realizes how smart it is for everyone to be vaccinated who can be medically. Um, It's it's an important public health issue. How's the private sector dealing with that? How are managers dealing with that? So if if you're listening in and you're you're a manager or supervisor and whether it's a big or small company, you've got some people who are perhaps reluctant to be with other people who are not vaccinated or who don't want to come to work because they don't want to be vaccinated. What's your advice on that, Scott, based on what you learned in writing and researching your book, The Whole Person Workplace? It's a big question and a a, a thorny question, right? Um, I know. So first off, with return to work, I think one of the things we should do with our return to workplace strategies is at baseline, what we want to do is maximize both the physical safety of our employees and also the psychological safety of our employees. And if we start with those principles, then maybe the decisions we make for our workplace or our workforce kind of become a little clearer for your situation. But it's a difficult one. I mean, um, I think that, you know, and we're seeing, you know, right now public policy is pushing employers to, um, you know, to require vaccinations or testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard about other organizations. I, I think it was Goldman Sachs who, uh, even before that, were saying if you're not vaccinated, there are certain restrictions on what you could do with the workplace in mm-hmm. terms of being in group meetings, uh, being in group spaces, uh, et cetera. So, you know, maybe there's some guide rails that we could put that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe try to, you know, thread the needle a little bit between autonomy and safety. But I think ultimately, you know, uh, if we prioritize both the physical safety of our employees and their psychological safety, you know, that 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 gets us started. Of course, there are some jobs that have worked 
you know, out in the world and in a workplace this entire time, right? And there are others who've been able to retreat to the safety of a Zoom screen and kind of everything in between. So I think when an organization's trying to figure out the return to workplace strategy, they need to think about, you know, the needs of their workers, what their preferences are, what the type of work certain people do and certain departments do. Um, and maybe there's different levels of flexibility uh, and accommodation in terms of flexibility for different mm-hmm. aspects of our workforce. Now, this gets tricky because that means we're not necessarily having the same blanket policy for everybody, mm-hmm. but we do need to be fair to everybody and considerate of everybody. So even if, you know, um, you know, one of, one of the companies I profile in, in this book is Uncommon Goods, and they have, you know, professionals, you know, in, in offices, and now they're working mostly remote, but they have warehouse workers and, you know, you know you know, people who are blue collar and, you know, have to show up at a particular place at a particular time. And while they couldn't have their warehouse workers work from home or work remotely, um, they provided them a safe work environment. And, um, you know, they already paid. Um, they started at $18 an hour, even pre-pandemic. Uh, they bumped that up. Um, they uh, made sure that all of the benefits that they were giving to their white collar employees, they were giving to their to their uh, wholesale employees as well. Um, so there's different ways we can accommodate different groups, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of making sure they feel physically and psychologically safe, even if the final decisions are different. Now, my job, um, you know, I'm a college professor. Um, we're back on campus this semester, but with a lot of restrictions, right? Um, and that's probably where, you know, many organizations kind of are now. I don't think most companies are going to go completely back to the way it was where everybody's at work all at the workplace all the time. And I don't think that many are going to be like work remotely forever. I think those are highly publicized uh, you know, examples and there will be some that do that, but most are going to be in a very muddled middle. Um, and I think we need to listen to employees. We need to build in mechanisms to listen to employees. We need to be flexible about this too, because who the heck knows what's going to happen three months from now. I mean, things are trending better, but things trended better last summer um, and, you know, got yeah. worse. So, well, I think your yeah. emphasis on uh, ongoing communication and listening well and being responsive, um, that's really at the heart of your, of your approach in this book, which speaks, um, you know, in very practical terms to employers. Let's, let's turn our attention to what it is that people want now. Yeah. Um so what what did you discover in your research about what employees want? Is it autonomy? Is it uh, is it child care support? Is it wellness programs? Is it I mean, what is it that is uh, and of course, everyone's different, as you point out, uh, but just speaking in terms of how to design uh, organizational responses to what it is that, you know, people need now. Uh, what have you, what have you seen? What, what's, what's really at the, at the top of the list of uh, needs and interests that, that employees are bringing to their work these days? Yeah, it's complicated because again, people are all different stages in their lives and have different priorities and challenges and responsibilities. But I think at heart, again, that physical and psychological safety uh, after that, I think really it's, I think the way you can reach all your different employee populations is if we can allow more autonomy over time and place, that allows people to construct their own kind of custom fit solutions that fit their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's a single thing that can really affect a lot of different types of employees. So, you know, if, if, you know, someone with young children has a little more time, time autonomy, you know, they can maybe flex their work around, you know, some of their childcare needs. Um, whereas someone a little further in their careers, maybe, you know, that, that flexibility is something they use for other purposes, um, for elder care, for just time for life and vacation time and enjoying some of the, the fruits of their labor. Um, for people starting out in their careers, maybe this is time for a social life and a softball league or uh, for taking, getting a master's degree. Um, if we allow that more flexibility and autonomy and time that cuts to the heart of a lot of different groups. Um, I try to, in the book, highlight, you know, a wide variety of programs and policies that might be more or less important for different types of employees. Um, but I think at heart, um, you know, a little more autonomy over time, uh, and place, uh, goes a, a really long way. 
Um, and for some employees, uh, this might mean the autonomy of it might be the, the scheduled certainty of it as well. So, you know, many Macy's stores have an agreement uh, with, mm-hmm. uh, with their employees that they know their schedules like four weeks, six weeks in advance, and mm-hmm. they can't be changed if, except for some very limited circumstances, um, which allows people time to, you know, figure out childcare and doctor's appointments and, and things like that. So I think time and place um, autonomy uh, is really a, a key that unlocks a lot of doors. But yes, we're going to have returning new moms. We're going to have sandwich generation. We're going to have uh, people who want to volunteer. We want, you know, all these other things that we need to, you know, big companies, again, can listen systematically and build a wide range of programs. BASF, I love how they um, flesh out their, uh, if you go to their careers page on their website, they have, it's a chemical company, but they have what's called the periodic table of benefits, uh, where they, cat- it looks like a periodic table of elements. That's um, pretty funny. And it's, it's all the different things that they do in terms of time, in terms of finances, in terms of educational mm-hmm. benefits, and they're all color coded. And you can see how you could fit into those if you're a BASF mm-hmm. employee. Um, big companies can, can provide that range. Smaller companies, I think, maybe need to be a little more focused and really listen. But I think at heart, you know, the intervention that, that has the most bang for its buck is probably, you know, having a little more flexibility and autonomy over time and place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to deal with the question of fairness that often comes up in these kinds of conversations. Well, just because, you know, he's a parent and has childcare responsibilities for two kids, why is he getting more flexibility and time off when I, you know, want to go to my softball league? And that's really important to me. Right. So I think if we, if it's framed, it, first up, if it's, it's, uh, if this is something that is, uh, that all people can plug into, right? Mm-hmm. Not just working parents. It re- reduces that resentment. And if any, if more people could see themselves plugging into this, because really parental leave even is just a form of paid time off if you frame it that way, right? Mm-hmm. And we all get paid time off for different things, including vacation or sick time or uh, caring for others, et cetera. Um, you know, if we frame things as like, we're trying to support everybody as best we can, mm-hmm. um, you know, it reduces maybe some of that, you know, checking and resentment that we sometimes see. You know, we don't want a parental leave to mean this person goes away for six weeks and everybody else is overburdened, right? If we plan our parental leaves better, if we manage that process better, then we distribute work. We make it a developmental opportunity for someone. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, with parental leave, like we often have noticed that this is going to be something that we need to plan around, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we can make sure that, you know, team, we work in a team-based environment with overlapping teams and substitutability of work um, that makes, again, someone be, being able to step out for a period of time, whether that's mm-hmm. uh, they're sick or parental leave or vacation time, is not that big an issue, right? Because it's not overburdening everybody else. And again, mm-hmm. that might reduce some of the resentment that, that is sometimes seen in, in these things. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Scott Beeson, who's a professor of management at Fairleigh Dickinson University. We're talking about his new book, The Whole Person Workplace, written during the pandemic, really about the pandemic and post-pandemic life at work. Uh, earlier in the conversation, Scott, you talked about the difficulties that people who had to work at home uh, have you know, the challenges that they face in drawing the boundary between their work time and and commitments and other aspects of their lives. Uh, What advice comes from your work on this subject for employees about how best to navigate those boundaries? Yeah. So employers sometimes impose this burden, but sometimes we do it to ourselves too, right? Um, You know, many of us who are ambitious, uh, who are career driven, you know, we, you know, we might see an advantage in our careers to continue to, to, to work these, these big hours and things like that. So part of it's time management and prioritization, and that's easier said than done, right? Um, but there's other things that can be, that you can do. Like, so um, many work teams have shared calendars. You can build in maybe time in your shared calendar where it's like, I, I need to do my individual head down work now. Please don't interrupt me during these hours or don't schedule something during these hours, right? So at least, you know, we could be more productive during our time, which means we don't have as much um, 
you know, cuts and breaks in our time so we can work more efficiently and maybe finish earlier. Um, the other thing is uh, communication with our uh, supervisor and our work team, especially our supervisor, maybe clarifying what our goals and metrics and how we're going to be measured, how our performance is going to be measured over the short and medium term. And if we have those conversations, maybe we realize that we finished our to-do list for the week so we can, you know, we can have a date night or we can, you know, do something else without feeling that pressure. But during the pandemic, so many employees, I think, were grateful to still be employed uh, and therefore really dove in and and really blurred those lines. And it's difficult Mm -hmm. when your computer's right there. Um, you know, maybe you put the kids to bed, you check an email and it's an hour and a half later when you realize you got up, you, you get up from your computer, right? Mm-hmm. We've all done that. I guess if I can add two things to this, one is, um, you know, the recognition that, um, if we're able to work in a where and when differently than we used to, we could use that to our advantage. So maybe it's good that we're putting in an hour at 11 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. but you know, make sure that means that we can also have the time for like when our kids don't get home from school, that we have that hour um, where we can we, we can flex into that. Right. So maybe it's just a, a little discipline, the trade off. But also, you know, occasional overwork is simply the cost of doing business. If you want to have a good career, um, some weeks are going to be killer weeks. You know, some months are going to be harder than others. The problem is the chronic overwork. If every week's a killer week, right. you know, we end up burning ourselves out and we're less effective and we, we do you know, we do worse work over time and we get less motivated and you know maybe we start thinking about different places we could work at, at that point well a lot of people are uh talking about you mentioned the great resignation yeah. there's every day i see a new piece uh thought piece uh, on how um there's been a kind of reimagining of the place of work in our lives and how people are much more inclined now to be uh, aware of those things in life that are precious, um, perhaps because they've suffered loss unexpectedly in this last couple of years. Uh, And there's a, a reconsideration of really what matters in life. And that is changing you know, the psychological contract that people have with uh, their employers. Um, I'd like to, I know you, you speak in the book about how job seekers uh, should be, you know, thinking about their challenge these days. I wonder if we can put that question in the context of, well, what really matters to you in your life? And if, and, and how does that affect you know, how you approach a job search. Yeah. So, I mean, not, not to just jump on your thing, but then, you know, think about four way wins, right. When we're a job seeker, right. How can we find a, a job or a career or an employer that supports us for career success, but also might help us be more successful in the other aspects of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I provide advice, you know, and even specific questions to ask at like the end of a job interview or during networking sessions about, you know, to gauge the workplace culture where where you might go to work. How um, do you do that? Can you give us an example of that? Because most people are afraid to do that for fear of seeming like they are yeah. leading with the non-work aspects of their lives. And so an employer is going to become disinterested because they'll be, you know, inferring that that means a lack of commitment. Well, I mean, it could be things like, you know, tell me about how did you help prevent your employees from burning out when they jumped into work from home last summer? Mm-hmm. Or tell me about how you have gauged employees' preferences as you're figuring out your return to workplace strategy, right? They don't have to be like, what can you do for me? Uh-huh. But you have questions that get to, is this a workplace that listens to its employees' values, mm-hmm. its employees, mm-hmm. right? So you're not saying like, hey, you know, make sure I get this or that. But you're asking these questions that gauge and gets to the heart of the culture. Do you value, and, and, and the question behind the question really is, you know, do you as an employer value your employees as more than just a part of the machine or an asset that returns a, on the investment? You know, mm-hmm. do, do you care about your employees as, as people as well? Can, can I see myself, um, you know, being able to be successful, not just at work, but, you know, in the rest of my life, if I choose to work with you and with the great resignation and with the labor market, the way it is, yeah. you can 
be a little more forward about this. Um, and yeah, our- it's really a seller's market for, for uh, particularly in certain sectors of the economy for uh, for employees, um, and so they can be perhaps emboldened by that in terms of making these kinds of inquiries. And I think your your suggestions here about how to do that in a way that's not directly about your own personal needs, but that gets indirectly, but still at the yep. matter of, you know, what's what's the culture here? What what are the policies and how they approach the relationship with people uh, and their lives beyond work? I think th- those are really helpful. And I know you have more in the book, but folks, you're going to have to read it to find out more. <laughs> we, we are nearing the conclusion of this conversation. Um, you know, another aspect uh, that I wanted to make sure I asked you about was the whole question of privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now, we're on Zoom. I can see into your room. You can see into my room. Listeners, of course, only hear our voices. But, you know, I'm picking up information about you and you're picking up information about me uh, from from my background, at least that I've curated for your <laughs> you know, for your view. Is this the real me or not? I don't know this. You know, there's a whole art and like minor cottage industry here on how to design your your Zoom space. Uh, but, you know, the question of how much you reveal about yourself and how the walls separating us have in some ways been, you know, lowered. Um, any advice based on what you've studied here this last couple of years for employees in terms of how to maintain the privacy boundary that they want? Yeah. So, I mean, a whole first workplace, some people misinterpreted that um, as saying like, oh, that's like. So now everybody knows everything about you and now can, you know, but it's not exactly that. I think yes, because let me just say, I definitely don't want to know everything about you, Scott. And I can guarantee you that you don't want to know everything about me. I thought we were friends. Um, <laughs> but of course. Me- and and the, one of the reasons we can maintain our friendship <laughs> is that you don't know everything about me and, and vice versa. No, so, I mean, there used to be a professional distance, I think. Um, yeah. But you know, that doesn't mean that it's like we ignore the person, right? Mm-hmm. Or some of the other things that are going on. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said before, larger organizations, what they really should do is provide a wide range of programming uh, and benefits that people can fit into the ones that that make sense for them to fit into. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's not an overly paternalistic, like I need to know everything about you in order to, um, you know, to do this. But, you know, um, and people, yeah, I mean, if you're doing your job well, if you're a good teammate um, and someone's like, you know what, that's it. That's good enough for me. You know, my, my work is not my life. We can respect that from that person, right? If that's okay with our, with our company. Um, so how we value that individual, right, might be, like you said, you know, okay, you know, let's, let's keep the relationship at a certain level. Um, other people might want to be more kind of all in or, or, or whatever else. Um, so it comes down to individual consideration, I think sometimes, but that's tricky. As you say, again, um, everyone needs to feel safe in the workplace and welcomed in the workplace. And that gets to identity and diversity and and equity and those types of issues. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to be best friends and everybody needs to know everything about what's going on in someone's life. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And again, when we were in emergency mode last spring and summer, we were in, in each other's dining rooms uh, maybe it was hard to make that wall of separation, but I think now that we've learned how to operate in, in a hybrided environment, I think people are figuring out how, where the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, it's it's a matter of ongoing communication, and it really has changed the job of the manager, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And in many ways, it's made it a little more complicated, um, you know, because one size does not fit all. Um, especially, you know, going back to the question or two, when you talked about different preferences for returning to a workplace, uh, some people work great from home and want to work from home forever. Some people can't wait to get back to the office all the time and everything in between. Right. So it's complicated. We really need to listen and be empathetic. Mm-hmm. And that does not mean we lower standards. That does not mean we don't have accountability. It just means we're more flexible on the means of how we get there, which makes, again, a manager's life or a manager's work a little more difficult. But I think the payoff is if you're doing this well, um, you're going to attract, retain, and engage your talent, 
which is going to take care of so many other problems, right? That, mm-hmm. that we have when we can't hold on to our time. Um, so, you know, it's a like a short term, it gets a little more difficult. In the long run, it creates a better workplace that works well for everybody, including you as the manager. We are uh, at the end of our time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, can you say in a sentence, what is your main piece of advice for working parents these days? For working parents? Yes. Um, would be, uh, you know, you might have a, you might have a window of time right now where you might be able to, with a little less churn, a little less difficulty, find a situation that really works for you in your whole life, you know, and that your career and it, that fits both your career goals and your life goals. Mm-hmm. So yeah, take advantage of the great resignation to mm. at least look around and, or to have conversations with your manager or supervisor about how can we make sure that your work and life, um, you know, uh, integrate well. Or All right. That's, that's, uh, that's useful advice. Scott, it's great having you back on the show today. How can listeners find out more about the work you're doing these days? Sure. Well, my, my website is scottbeeson.com, S-C-O-T-T-B-E-H-S-O-N.com. Uh, the best way to, to find out about me and my work is to go right to Amazon or wherever you buy books and put in whole person workplace. Um, I'm also uh, on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty easy to find because I have a weirdly spelled last name, B-E-H-S-O-N. And I'm happy to have conversations with anybody about uh, this work. Um, I'm so proud of this book. And I really want, you know, as many workplaces to to be able to get some ideas about how to improve uh, through this. Well done, Scott. Thanks again. And thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have questions about something you heard on the show, just email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm also on Twitter at Stu Friedman. Visit TotalLeadership.org for more info about what we do. Thanks, Patty Hall, as ever, for producing the show and sound engineer Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. 